The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to have you along tonight. We've got a very interesting discussion ahead of us tonight. Sylvia True will be our uh, guest tonight. Sylvia is a teacher and an author. We're going to be talking about the shame of mental illness. Now, the story that's going to unfold for us is very, very complex and very, very unique. The book that Sylvie has written is called Where Madness Lies, and it's her second novel. But it's a story about hope and redemption and about what we pass on both genetically and culturally. It's about the high price of repression, specifically repression of Nazi Germany, is one of the focuses of this discussion, and how one woman who lost nearly everything must be willing to reveal the failures of the past in order to save future generations. There's chilling echoes of our time in this novel, and it's based on the true story of the author's very own family. So this is going to be quite an interesting discussion. Looking forward to this tonight. And I hope you are too. And I hope you're all doing very, very well. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube and on Twitch. Both of those channels can be found by searching, just search for JV Johnson. By the way, if you've subscribed to us on the Twitch channel and you haven't reconnected your Amazon Prime account to continue that subscription, please jump on Twitch and do that for us. Um, I know that those are, it's, it's hard to remember that you have to do that every month, but we appreciate it. It helps out our channel a lot by doing that. And hopefully it's, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't cost you anything to do that if you have an Amazon Prime account. So we appreciate that very much. All right, let's take a break. Let's get ready to have our guest on the program. Again, Sylvia True will be joining us after the break. Teacher, author, her book is called um, Where Madness Lies. It's the second novel of Sylvia's, and we're looking forward to having the conversation with her tonight. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hello to everyone in the chat room. If I haven't already said that, I appreciate you being there and having the conversation, offering insight and ideas and questions throughout the chat room. And if you're looking for the chat room, it's very easy to find by going to the YouTube channel and visiting the live stream on YouTube. That's where our chat room is hosted. Again, tonight we're going to be talking with Sylvia True. Sylvia is a teacher and an author, of course. We're going to be talking about mental illness, the importance about being open about it and the connection between mental illness and spirituality. Sylvia, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you on with us tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. I have to say, uh, you know, learning a little bit more about your background and your work, um, I see that you're a chemistry, a science teacher in a high school. Is that right? That's correct, yep. How does a chemistry teacher, science teacher, who has a brain, I think, kind of like mine, very like logical, um, be be such a be such a, an artist when it comes to uh, to writing novels? I mean, that's that's left brain, right brain stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I, it is left brain, right brain stuff, and I'm a big believer, and I tell this to my students all the time that you guess what, you can use both sides, <laughs> and 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 really enjoy them both, and enjoy. <laughs> That, you know, enjoy the thinking that comes from the different sides. So when I write, it's just 
it's like a different switch turns on and it's really a fun switch because I often don't know where my story's going exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to take that leap. And I think it's really important, especially of course being a teacher, to make sure students understand that, yeah, they're you know, you can use both sides and you probably should. It's like good exercise. You wouldn't just wanna exercise your arms, you wanna exercise your legs too. You know, you just you just actually made me come to a realization here because when I think of authoring a book, particularly a novel, I just to me that seems monumental. It seems impossible for me to think in those terms. But I'm a musician, so I can be left brain and right brain at the oh, same time, or you know, alternate yeah, between the two. Absolutely. So absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and that's incredibly creative music. Well, you, yeah, you haven't heard my music. I don't know if you'd say that well, if you've heard it. <laughs> Uh, just kidding, of course. Hey, you know, the other thing I, th- I saw that was really interesting to me is that uh, you're a teacher in Holliston. Correct. Now, if I say the name Adam Green, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Oh, my God. Adam Seriously? Green. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Yes. Yeah. I taught Adam Green forever ago. Did you really? Forever ago. Um I can't remember because I see I'm still in high school, so I don't like age. I've been in high school for many, many years now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yes, of course I remember Adam. And of course, um, uh, you know, not only a, a director, and I recommend my audience check out his films. One of his, uh, fa- one of my favorites of his is a film called Frozen, which is not the Disney Frozen. So don't get confused because this is a little darker than that. Um, but he also had the television. Well, it was, I guess he'd call it a television show called Holliston for a, for a few seasons too. Oh, I think, you know what? I'm going to, you know, and I have good friends who will absolutely remember Adam. So I'm, Writing down the name, obviously, and the movie. Yeah, Hollis. That is so cool. The the TV show that he did. It was on a, a channel uh, called FearNet, which was a um, a cable channel that existed for a few years. Then it was bought up by one of the major, uh, like I think it was bought up by the Chiller Channel, and it was killed by Chiller. You know, Chiller bought the competition and, and got rid of him, um, which is sad because right. the TV show he did was a lot of fun. It had Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister was a regular uh, character on the program. Um, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> we're here, yeah. But it's funny. I, that's I'm, a great I, connection, though. It really it's is. so nice to hear. It really is. Tell us about your roots. Tell us about... Uh, your parents, because I found that fascinating, too. Sure. Um, so both of my parents were born, actually, in Frankfurt, in Germany. Um, they were both from pretty influent- influential families, although they didn't know each other at the time in Germany. And both my parents fled, and my mother's family fled to Switzerland, and my father's family fled to England. And my mother later became was national champion skater, wow. and she trained in England, and my father became a theoretical nuclear physicist, and they met in England, and they married. We were all born in England, and then we moved to the U.S., you know, a, a few years after that. But so there, there's a lot of history there in terms of their fleeing and the circumstances which they in which they fled. Um, with my mother's family, I think in some ways it's a little bit more interesting because it encompasses the whole mental illness piece. And not a lot of, well, I, that's not fair to say. I think a lot of people do know how, you know, the Nazis treated the mentally ill. Yeah. And, you know, that they were actually murdered. And 
and really in many ways, when you look at the history, it was really their opening act because they set up and built gas chambers in the mental hospitals and the doctors who designed them and set those up were then later moved to the concentration camps to set them up there. So, you know, they really perfected their techniques, you know, in the mental hospitals. And um, my mother's family, um, my grandmother's sister was mentally ill and was obviously caught up in all of that. And, you know, she, she did not make it out of Germany. Um, Yeah. Most people are obviously aware of what Nazi Germany did to the Jewish population, but, as you just pointed out, prior to that, they were trying to, quote-unquote, well, I don't know if there's a quote or not, but in their words and paraphrasing, maybe, they were trying to purify their race, uh, and part of that was uh, disposing of mentally ill uh, or uh, def- defective in other ways, you know, birth defects, anything that they didn't deem to be pure or perfect um, was subject to this type of elimination. And it's a really, I mean, that's part of the story of Nazi Germany. It's not often told. Right. Right. It's, it's a footnote sometimes where, yeah. you know, it's really interesting history because it, it really led them to, you know, the concentration camps. So, you know, leaving out that piece, you kind of miss like a connective, mm-hmm. you know, piece of the puzzle, so to speak. And it's and it's so. every bit as tragic. I mean, there's certainly no question about that. Um, oh, right. But before we get into the story here, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you, you know, how you started to put this together in your mind. Um, and when you decided to write Where Madness Lies, how did that evolve? So. It it's basically a story of my family. It's fictionalized because there are pieces that I didn't know that I had to sort of create, although I created them around, you know, true history. Right. But pieces of my family that I, you know, I wasn't actually sure of. Um, so I actually suffered from major depression and anxiety throughout my life, but it got really bad in my mid-20s. And I knew it was getting worse, actually. I could feel it. And, you know, I I never knew I was depressed because I had to act perfectly. I knew there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So I just tried to hide it, you know. And I know many people do that in, you know, all kinds of ways in all sorts of families. So, right. you know, in many ways, this is a story that will resonate with a lot of people, you know, trying to act like you're fine, trying to act like your family's perfect and, you know, trying to hold on, trying to hold on. And it, it was really that feeling of walking on a tightrope. And um, then, you know, I, I knew that I was not doing great. And so I decided, well, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll have a baby. That'll fix everything. <laughs> And yeah, well, I was, you know, I was in my twenties, whatever. And, um, so I had a baby and that just completely sunk me into a really deep postpartum depression on top of a lifelong, you know, depression and a lot of repression as well. And then I went into McLean, which is outside of Boston and I had amazing treatment and my mother and my grandmother helped as well. And when I I remember going there, and especially when they they first asked you all the questions, you know, is there any family history? And I was like, no, my family's perfect, and and I really believed that. Right. Like, 
no, my childhood was perfect. No, my I literally said those words. No, my family was perfect. My childhood was perfect. And um, my mother and grandmother were just too terrified to even speak to me initially. Like, it, you know, they they couldn't even talk to me, obviously, on the phone or anything. But, you know, they got over that. And eventually, my grandmother really, you know, told the story of her past. And in telling that story, she had to reveal that she had a sister who was mentally ill in Germany. And it was, you know, it was a family secret. And it was something never to be spoken about. And, you know, nobody wants to repeat the past. And so we just, you know, lock it up, close it up. But in, in revealing the secret, obviously, gave me enormous freedom and made me not feel alone because I wasn't the only one and no family's perfect. And that there's a huge, great freedom in that. And, you know, sort of the whole family then could begin to open up and connect. So it was really a, a gift to go into a mental hospital. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it <laughs> sounds, sounds like totally crazy. It, it, it does, but at the same time, it sounds like it was very cleansing in a way and, and, and uniting for your family. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, and, and I think it is, again, you can look at this many different families in many different ways. You know, when families are holding on to these secrets and when they finally let go of them and open up, you know, there is a connection that's made. And, and I think with that comes a deeper, truer love, actually. The, yeah, and the process of keeping those family secrets um, and harboring them is, is, presents its own set of challenges and angst and pain. Right, enormous amount of anxiety, you know, because everybody's keeping a lid on things. And, and then the children, like, we didn't, we didn't know what, the secret was we weren't told there was this secret, but you can you can feel it, right? You know there's so much going on underneath, and you don't know what it is, and you feel like a little bit crazy. Why do I feel all this tension and anxiety, and everything's supposed to be perfect? I'm supposed to say it's perfect, but nothing feels right, you know? So as you got this information, you sort of recognized what your family history had been. It, it started to make sense to you. you it, it actually helped you on a road to recovery, it seems. Um, you, I, I imagine it also created a curiosity. Well, right. A huge curiosity, which, of course, is one of the reasons I wrote about it. I mean, I wanted to understand the roots of my family better, like where their beliefs came from, where their fears came from. And, you know, especially as a mother, um, you know, you don't want to, the one thing you don't want to pass on is, you know, fear and shame, right? You know, and and my mother didn't pass those on, you know, knowingly, but keeping something repressed like that does pass that on. And so I did want to learn everything I could about my family now, and they weren't always forthcoming in terms of all the details that happened in Germany. I mean, that's very true of many people who fled. They don't really like to talk about it. And um, But I think it's an important story. It's an important story because it, it's about repression. It's about mental illness. And it's more than anything about opening up about these things and trying to take away the shame and the stigma and, you know, realizing that we're all equal, whether we have mental illness or blue hair, right? <laughs> right. Um, tell us who these characters and slash family members are. I mean, you've mentioned your mom and your grandmother, but how do they fit into the big picture? 
So, okay, in terms of the book? Yes. Okay. So, um, my grandmother is the character named Inga, and she's really the protagonist. So, she's, there are two uh, timelines. There's one in 1934 in Germany, in Frankfurt, when eugenics was huge. And that's a, sort of a big part of the book, the, the whole idea of the of perfection, really, of purifying the race, right, and getting rid of any diseases. Um, so Inga is in 1934 trying to basically save her sister. Her sister's been diagnosed with a number of things, starting with hysteria, because women were always diagnosed with hysteria, mm-hmm. and, you know, then depression and eventually schizophrenia. And in Germany around that time, schizophrenia was used, uh, that label was used a lot. Right. So whether or not that was what she actually had is is completely unclear. I mean, it doesn't sound like it when my grandmother talked about her. Anyway, so 1930s, my grandmother's trying to, you know, help her sister and, you know, do everything she could, the research, get all the best doctors, you know, go to this you know, the best institution at the time and in what that was called Sonnenstein. And, um, you know, eventually it didn't work out. And my grandmother left to Switzerland and lost really everything, right? I mean, her status in society, her wealth, her, you know, her sister, her, she had to leave her husband there. And then she, you know, kind of closed off in a way, you know, compartmentalized everything that happened. And then in the 1980s, her granddaughter, basically me, um, is mentally or comes down with some form of mental illness and is institutionalized. And, you know, it's terrifying for Inga, the grandmother. And yet she, you know, she has the courage to really to come to this country and to, you know, to eventually tell the granddaughter, you know, that this actually has happened before. And in that way, they, they they become close. The granddaughter has ideas about the grandmother being too strict and rigid. And, you know, they both have their prejudgments about the other. And as they open up, they really begin to understand where those, you know, prejudices came from. And as they begin to understand each other, they can empathize and then, you know, finally love each other. I can only imagine the amount of emotions that came out of you as you were writing this story. And as you penned the last few words and, you know, put the final period on, that must've been quite an emotional roller coaster. Um, it's funny. It, it, (laughs) when, when, I don't know if this is true for music, I'm just curious. I'm sort of curious if it is. You know, sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you're so deep into the story that I, I don't know, you know, you're so deep into the characters. And, yeah. and do you feel what the characters feel to some degree? But you get so lost in the story that I wouldn't say, like, it was truly cathartic, but it wasn't cathartic in the way that it brought up, like, a lot of tears or anything like that. It was more it was more like digging and going deep and trying to really understand like and I don't know again, I imagine it's probably the same with music, but you you know, like you write a sentence or you write a paragraph and you think about it and you're like, no, that's not quite right and you're always trying to tweak it and go deeper and deeper, you know. 
So that's more of the feeling I get when I write. Like, just it's all about wanting so desperately to to really understand the characters and their motivation. Mm-hmm. But you had had the I don't know. If, I guess I would call it the benefit of um, you know basing this on people who had real experiences and that. That as you know, as you come to terms with that, particularly the tragedy involved, um, and then the reconciliation at the very end when it it made you healthy, um, in the end, um, what a story! I want I want you to uh, give us some more details if you can. How much information did you have about the fate and the treatment of your grandmother's sister? Um, I I had enough. I had enough to know what to write about in terms of um, that they tried a lot of different treatments that um, eventually with the help of a doctor, she was euthanized. Um, You know, she had to go through the sterilization process in Germany in 1933, they came up with their sterilization law and from 34 to 39, they sterilized like 400,000 people. And it was for, you know, what they called feeble-minded, which could be a huge spectrum of things, manic depressive, congenital blindness and deafness, and even alcoholism, right? I mean, you know, everything was like thrown in there. That's right. And um, so, yeah, so I knew that. And um, I I always felt, um, I remember the first time, I don't, it must, it must, I was pretty young. I would say eight-ish, you know, and there was a picture of, um, so my grandmother's sister is named Rigmore, which is a family name, and, and her name is still used in the book. So there was a picture of Rigmore on my grandmother's desk, and I, you know, and she, my grandmother had nothing else on her desk. I mean, she was, like, the most clean, like, non-cluttery person that ever lived, I think. But there was this one picture, and I remember asking, you know, who is that? And my grandmother, you know, very coldly said, it's my sister. And I was like, oh, that's weird. You know, I was like, I didn't know you had a sister. And again, very, you know, yes, she died. And I was like, well, how did she die, you know? And my grandmother sort of turned away and and sort of mumbled the flu. But I knew... And, you know, I'm not psychic, although I wish I was, but, uh, I, you know, just like children know these things, you're sensitive to those things. And I knew that something else obviously had happened. Um, so it was always there. It was always like looming over. And to find out that she probably, she and I probably suffered from very similar things was, liberating in a way, you know, I, you know, I, because I was told all of, I was oversensitive. I had to pull up my socks, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I come to find out later, of course, much later in life. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being oversensitive, right? It's actually kind of a great thing. I have to put, put us, bring us back to that point when you had that conversation with your grandmother, you asked her about the picture, uh, about how old were you, and did you understand the context of where your grandmother had come from, what would, what was going on in Europe at the time that she left, the, those kinds of details that would may have uh, may have given you an indication of what really happened? At that point, did you understand any of that? No, 
absolutely not. So, so it's more the feeling. I mean, it's almost like there were these whispers of things that you would kind of catch here and there, but I had no, I mean, and, and it was, you know, that was done on purpose. I mean, we were not told it was not shared with us, you know, and, and my father who also fled, you know, he would talk about his childhood in Nazi Germany. And I know from my mother much later on that he was, you know, treated extremely poorly and beaten up and his glasses were taken from him and, you know, smashed and, um, you know, he, he, until his dying day, he would tell you what a great childhood he had. So it was, it was these things that were, I think, repressed for sure, but also, yeah, we don't talk about that. Was there, was, was there a sense of, we're just going to, we're not going to dwell on, you know, what we live through here because we're going to persevere and we're going to uh, excel and succeed and survive and do all those things that they tried to not let us do. Is that part of it? Um, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it was even, I think it was more pushed away than that because that in the way you just described it, right. Which I really like the way you described it better. That's almost like, um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to use this sort of pain on whatever to rise above it. Right. 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 And I feel like they actually took that pain and trauma and really compartmentalized it and put it away as much as possible. Of course it seeps into, you know, to every aspect of your life, but you know, I, yeah, I think it was, I think they really wanted to not think about it. So your grandmother's sister, I think that doesn't that make her your great aunt? Is that right? Yes. Is that absolutely. how that works? Uh, so your great aunt uh, is institutionalized. Do we know what her diagnosis was? So the final diagnosis was schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Do Is that what I think it was after all the research I did? No. Um, the research I did in everything that was going on at that time, schizophrenia became this hugely common label. That's right. For, in Germany. And I think it was also a, a way to then make it easier probably to sterilize and eventually euthanize people. Was it, um, was it also used, and sorry to interrupt because I want you to continue, but was it also used it, as a label to have a justification for putting away people that they just did not want, maybe political opponents or anything like that? Um, I, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know that. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know. By then they, they probably didn't need an excuse. They just did it. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think it was, you know, they really wanted to, you know, clean the race, I guess, um, yeah. purify it yeah. from mental illness. I mean, and from all illnesses and just, you know, eugenics, eugenics is such an important part because eugenics was huge around the world. I mean, it wasn't yeah. just in Germany in the twenties and early thirties, you know, the U S had a big eugenics society. They sterilized people. You know, there's even one state now that I think still has, you know, the, these, crazy old sterilization laws in on their in their uh records but you know it was big everywhere and and you know when you look at it from a purely like biological point of view you think okay well we do want to get rid of diseases and you know how do we do that and they were like well we do that by not letting certain people 
you know, have children. And, right. and so we sterilize. So you kind of understand it on a, on a purely logical, biological view. And, of course, then, you know, the Nazis took the whole thing to crazy, obscene end, but well, it what, all really started with this whole idea about eugenics, and, and many doctors joined the Nazi party, many psychiatrists, because they did believe in this. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those odd people that actually read Mein Kampf in college, and uh, <laughs> well, I, 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 was, I was a World, World War II fanatic, you know, historian kind of thing, so I read it, and uh, it very clearly in there, Adolf Hitler wrote Mein Kampf while he was in prison in the 20s, and right. he very clearly says in that book, what you just outlined, what they were going to do. There's no mystery here. It was in black and white well before it started, uh, but it was, and it was, yet it was still allowed to happen. So back to your great aunt. She's institutionalized. She's, as you said, the diagnosis was uh, schizophrenia, whether that's really what it was or not, we're not sure, probably. Um, but do you know, first of all, how long was she institutionalized before she was euthanized? And how did that process go? Do we know? Um. So the way the way it's a little different in the book than in it's well it's not that different actually. Um, so she was institutionalized. It was clear that she wasn't going to be allowed out. They tried to get her out, but she had to be sterilized. And that and, was, and when you say they, you go. mean your grandmother and, and the rest of her family? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and how um, how old were they at this time? So they were in their. Mid to late twenties. Okay, and um, so eventually, really, it was done by a uh, sort of a family doctor. Mm. So she did not. I don't know. I mean, are you thankful for this? I don't know. She didn't end up going. So in in Sonnenstein, they did build. That was one of the six institutions that built the gas chambers. Um, so she didn't end up going to the gas chamber in the mental hospital. Um, I think that my grandmother and her and my grandmother's family, her mother, sort of had an idea of what, you know, a pretty, pretty clear idea of what was coming, obviously. Yeah. And I think, in a way, they thought it would be more merciful to do it, you know, with lethal injection. Wow. And, you know, and again, I, I'm not, you know, who can I, I'm not going to judge that. Right. Of course you can't. What's right or wrong. It's just also tragic, but. It sure is. We're talking tonight with Sylvia True, author of a book that we've been spending a good deal of time talking about the inspiration for. It's a true story. The The book is a novel, but this inspiration is a true story. And the book is called Where Madness Lies. And uh, it's partly the story of your family's history, Sylvia, partly your story. Uh, and it all comes together. And as you're finding all this information out um, and you're learning more and more about your family, how did you start to see your mom, maybe your grandmother? I don't know. I'm assuming your grandmother probably isn't with us now. Right. Yeah. No, she's not. But you must right. have started to, to either, if not understand them better, maybe look at them a little differently as you started to learn about these histories. Right. I think it, it, it gives you such enormous compassion when you really finally understand. I mean, my grandmother was, you know, I think sometimes she was the matriarch of the family. I think sometimes we looked at her a little like she was the Wicked Witch of the West. She was very strict, mm-hmm. and 
you know, not OCD, but almost like everything had to be controlled. And, and basically that comes from when I finally understood it all, you know, this, the lack of control she had in Germany before she fled, like, you know, she couldn't control all of these horrible things that were happening to her and around her. And so then she moved to Switzerland and, you know, pushed all that away and became a pretty rigid controlling person and who's very strict with her rules and, and, and not very, I'm not a warm person at all. And, you know, she criticized us about everything. I mean, our hair, the way we sat, that I talked with my hands too much. I mean, again, it's like endless, the, the criticisms. I remember once in my, I mean, it was, you know, I remember once visiting her and I, I would try so hard to like, you know, I just wanted her acceptance. I just wanted to, you know, look good and her to approve. I just wanted her approval. I, I sought that for so long. And I remember trying and getting an expensive outfit from Ann Taylor or wherever it was. It was sort of this linen-like material that looked a little crinkly, but it was supposed to look like that, you know. And, you know, I went to her chalet in Switzerland, and, you know, after I had arrived, I went upstairs, I got dressed into something different, and she looked at me and she was like, oh, now I understand why you had that other thing on. You wore that, so you would look poor and no one would steal your luggage. <laughs> and I was like, okay. You know, meanwhile, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, my heart's thinking, because I wore that to impress her, you know. So right. we had this idea of her, and she was kind of strict, and she wanted us to look good for our own good. It was always for our own good. For your own good, I have to tell you, your hair looks hideous. You know, for your own good. But when, when then this, you know, this sort of the secret and the past came to light, it really gave me this understanding of her and why she wanted to do this and why she wanted us to look perfect and why she never wanted us to show any signs of, God forbid, anxiety or depression or anything like that. And that's, that's a beautiful thing when you, when you really come to understand your family and their, you know, it was good intentions, you know, your hair looks hideous <laughs> for your own good, right. but you know, it, it's great to really get that depth of understanding. Did I understand you correctly? Did you say when the, when your grandmother left Germany and went to Switzerland, she left her husband? Yes, you did. So it, that side of my family, um, and that's an interesting story, too. So her husband, my grandfather, he was not Jewish. He um, he was a, uh, actually a very well-known chemist in Germany. Well, that's where I get the chemistry. And uh, he, if he was going to continue teaching at the university, they could not stay married because of the Nuremberg Laws oh, at the yeah. time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, okay, another little fun fact. She was also having an affair, so I think she wanted to leave him. But, um, but yeah, so, but she left that whole life, you know. And was there a connection between your grandfather and the Anne Frank family? Did I see something about that? Yes, 
my okay, and then <laughs> that's my other grandfather. Oh, okay. So on my <laughs> father's side, he did. Now he fled very late, and his cousin literally had to push him on a train to get him out because my grandfather was a doctor of the Frank family before they fled to Amsterdam. And my grandfather on my father's side was this incredibly brilliant, kind, gentle soul. And he just absolutely, absolutely refused to believe that this was going to happen. Right. That, yeah. A know, lot of people that, felt that way. Of course. I mean, couldn't believe it. You know, it's, it's, it is impossible. Like, it's just impossible to believe, you know, and I, I can feel that and imagine that. Like, no, it's never going to go that far. Like, don't be ridiculous. Like, people would never do that. Right. And then they do, and you're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, often in retrospect, we can sit here and say, why didn't everybody leave? Why didn't they get out when they could? Why did? And, and the way you just described it is exactly what people would think. They would say, OK, well, this is as bad as it's going to get until it got worse. Right. And then they'd say, well, this is as bad as it's going to get. And, uh, you know, no one could possibly imagine what was in store for so many people um, because it was something that that was unimaginable. I mean, that's just the only way you can describe it. Right. Right. And he was one of those people who who just had so much faith in humankind, you know, that they would never do that. And luckily, he had this cousin who was more politically connected and was like, yeah, you're getting out. And, and they, they, you know, they stripped him of his medical degree. He had to go and get a whole nother degree in Scotland before he ended up um, practicing in England. And only recently, I don't know, a few years ago, they uh, Würzburg University reinstated his oh, medical wow. license. Wow. Hmm. So. Um, as you were starting to explore your family history, you were also looking into uh, mental illness. And uh, one of the things that I'm sure you had to do a little, and you have a science background, so this may have been a little easier for you, but understand how genetics works in, uh, in in mental illness. What did you find out about that part? Well, it's so interesting because I think when I went to college forever ago, um, we were taught, you know, 80% of who we were was environmental and mm-hmm. 20% was genetic. And now I think we know it's, it's not that at all and not that I'm going to put numbers on it. You know, I could say 50-50, but we know a lot more is genetic. And, you know, a lot more research has been done, obviously, and there are a lot of genetic components to things. You know, alcoholism, different types of mental illness, definitely depression runs very strongly in my family. And, you know, I was, again, McLean was a weird kind of gift, right, because it, it gave me this insight into my family. And it, it also enabled me to be open with my daughters who both had varying degrees of depression and anxiety. One actually has more depression, one has more anxiety. But when I saw, especially with my other daughter, when I saw the first signs of it, you know, I was like, you did the opposite of what happened in my family, which was like, put it away, pull up your socks, you know, don't act anything, but you know, normal, I took my daughter to a therapist, a psychiatrist, and a psychic. I was covering all the bases. I was like, she is, you know, she's going to get all the help she needs. And I think 
for me, it's really important to share this story, too. As a teacher, you know, to say, hey, look, there's no shame in this, you know, and there's so much help out there. And you can get help in all different sorts of ways. And if the first person doesn't help you, guess what? There are going to be a thousand more that can help you. So that's part of my, I guess, spread the word thing. Yeah. And what else did you learn about mental illness? I mean, you know, some people, there are so many varying degrees of depression and anxiety, as you pointed out. You know, where is the line where you suggest somebody needs to seek some kind of professional help? Yeah, that's a great question. And depression is is an interesting one. And I talk about this with my friends and so many people, um, you know, because, you know, you can feel sort of depression's a, a tricky word. Sometimes I wish it wasn't called depression because we, we think of depression, we think feeling like blue and moody and right. whatever. And, and, you know, so, so there's just such a large spectrum. So when, when do, when is it time to say, you know, this, yeah, I need a little bit more support. You know, I, I'm not able to just walk it off with, you know, a good fast mile walk. Right. I don't know when, you know, when you feel too, for me, it was obvious. I mean, I couldn't function at all. I couldn't drive. I couldn't, I could barely shower. I mean, I really couldn't function in a way. My depression is in some ways easier to treat because it's black and white. You know what I mean? If I'm, if I'm not on medicine or if I'm not, I'm in the hospital with a lot, with most people, it's somewhere in between. Right. So, you know, when you start feeling, you know, like hopeless and lethargic and, you know, you can't really concentrate. And I think other things like obviously not being able to sleep is, um, you know, we all struggle with sleepless nights and I I don't want to, I'm not, you know, I don't want everybody to think, Oh God, now I have depression. That's not it at all. But you know, when you, you can, there's a, there are checklists of things, right? You know, changes in appetite, changes in sleep, you know, not able to concentrate. And then when the thoughts get darker, you know, thinking of suicide or just not wanting to be around anymore, you know, it's good to talk about it then, for sure. Yeah, well, there are too many tragic stories of people or or families who didn't recognize someone in their family uh, was suffering from these um these problems and ignored them or tried to explain them away and then with tragic consequences. Uh, so it's not something to take lightly for sure. Um, oh my God. Yeah. There was just this, Oh, it was so sad. I would, you know, sometimes in the middle during my prep period at work, I go for a walk around this, this little reservoir close by and, and a young man who actually went to Holliston high school. Um, this was a couple of weeks ago, just, you know, committed suicide there. Oh, geez. And um, I was there when they were like, you know, you know, looking for the body in the lake. Oh. And, um, and and in his obituary, I mean, the family wrote, like, it, you know, the most tragic thing was not really recognizing sort of the depth of the illness and trying to deal with it sooner. It was just so sad. Anyway. It is very sad, and it's poignant in my mind as well, just because I just watched, uh, I think it was on HBO, the documentary about uh, Conrad Roy, I believe was his name. And 
this is the story of of the girlfriend who encouraged him to commit suicide through texting. Oh, right, 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 right. That I was also in Massachusetts. Too. Okay, yeah. I knew the name, and it just took me a minute. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know, he 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 suffered from depression, and she she just encouraged it. Ultimately, I mean, it's a complicated story, but um, right, I had right. just I've just watched that, so this is pretty forefront in my mind as well. Um, let's change the topic a little bit. As you know, this program talks a little, a lot, not a little bit, but a lot about paranormal topics. And you have a strong belief in the paranormal. There's also a connection in the book about the paranormal. But before we get to the book part of it, what is your uh, opinion of paranormal topics and how do you connect to it personally? So I, that's been a huge and important journey for me. And uh, it started shortly after I um, got out of McLean. And I think that I was beginning to become more open, more curious, you know, I was getting more confident, and I met somebody who said his mother was a psychic. And now I came from a very scientific background, and, and you know, right. we were not allowed to believe in such nonsense, right? Like, <laughs> right. it was so poo-pooed. And, but I, you know, the more stories I heard, the more curious I got. So I ended up going to this woman, Sophie, who became a lifelong friend. She died about a, a year ago. She was uh, 91, and um, she was absolutely amazing, you know, as a psychic and as a mentor and as a guide. And I, you know, I began by her and by also it was, it was kind of, uh, it wasn't really a rebellion, but, you know, I, I, it wasn't really allowed in my family to go and see a psychic, you know? And so I, I, when I did it, when I started pursuing it, I did it kind of scientifically. Like I was almost collecting data. I mean, it wasn't a scientific experiment. Don't get me wrong. But then I just got more and more. And I am so fascinated. And I have had such tremendous experiences, both good and not so good, um, because I, I sort of went, my daughter calls me the medium hunter, all right? Because <laughs> I went on this journey to learn everything I could and to go and seek different mediums. I didn't, I wasn't even seeking it for any need of necessarily healing. It was more, you know, curiosity and what is going on. And then I did more research and looked into the university of Virginia and the past lives with Tim Tucker. I don't know if you've heard of him or seen his stuff. Cause that's amazing. The research they've done. And it, the research, they have mountains of research, and I find it absolutely fascinating that our culture, this culture, um, is unaccepting of it. And I suppose that comes from my family, and I'm still in my head warring with my family, you know, like, I, you know, why don't you believe it? Look at all of this stuff. Look at all of these stories. Look at all of this data that's been collected by scientists, by doctors, you know, especially also in nursing homes and hospice centers. So, yeah, I it's just totally fascinating to me. And I'm also really fortunate in Ed Holliston, right, I'm the department head for science and technology. Mm-hmm. And we sort of nicknamed our department now. We're the Science, Technology, and Paranormal Studies Department. And it's because through all, you know, through lunches over the year, year after year, you know, we, you know, because of my interest in it, I sort of brought it to them and they all got interested in it. And we all 
talked about it, and a colleague of mine even went with me to Ireland to go and visit a medium. So it's been a great journey, and it, it just opens up so much. And it, I don't know, it it brings so much like light and hope and love. I think to this to my world. Well, it's really refreshing. No, it's really refreshing to hear that. Um that you and your department, I'm assuming you're talking, when you say you said we a few times, you're talking about your fellow faculty in your department. Um, It's refreshing to know that people who are educators and scientific-minded people are actually starting to be open to this. And we're seeing that slowly evolve. You know, we obviously talk about these topics a lot. We actually last night had a past life regressionist on the program uh, talking about her work. And, uh, you know, so we're hearing that a lot. You know, there's still people who put a hand to your face when you bring up the topics. However, it is becoming a little bit more accepted to chat about it. And it seems to me that someone who is scientific minded, uh, if nothing else, they would have a curiosity and not just dismiss things out of hand. Well, that's what's always so interesting to me. I mean, I sort of live by this quote, um, only a closed mind is certain. And... um you know, and I, I think back and, you know, to some of my family and this closed-mindedness to this, you know, like, how can you, you know, you you don't know, like, listen to all these stories, you know? Right. And I, I also taught, this is kind of interesting, too, I taught a course, and I have taught this course, where it's called Science in the Media, and we, and we don't use textbooks, it's not, it's more of a fun science course, so... You know, we study Ebola and, you know, things that are that are going to interest the students. And we always end up um, going to the paranormal. And I show them some of the work that um, was done at University of Virginia. And then I ask the students, you know, have you ever had an experience or somebody you know? And, you know, you can tell they're a little bit nervous, but, you know, they hear me go on and on and they get they feel a little safer. And Almost every time, every student, every person has some story, maybe not their own, but somebody they know. And they're a little bit shy and maybe a little bit embarrassed to talk about it. And then I I try to explain, you know, I go to the jungle in in Peru to do research with some of my students in the summer. And, you know, in Peru, they have a completely different idea of spirituality. I mean, the trees and the river and the wind, they have spirit in them and families you know, can feel that maybe another family put a curse on them or a hex on them. And if they feel that, they can go to the police and the police actually investigate it. And people here are like, well, that's laughable. I'm like, well, why is it laughable? I mean, and and I mean, this is no, I'm not against any religion. I actually love all religions. But, you know, you can go to take communion and believe you're, you know, eating the body and blood of Christ, right? Now, how? why is my belief that I, my mother can hear me, right. I, you know, on the other side, any more crazy than that? Like, I can't, I don't even understand. You know, I I remember also uh, two years ago, I think, I uh, in Peru, I don't know if you've ever heard of ayahuasca. Uh, um, ayahuasca's... Yeah, I'm not sure. Go like ahead. A, a plant hallucinogenic that bring that you know brings you connects you to the spirit world and okay. and people will go on these you know will 
be taking ayahuasca and, and see these incredible, bright, beautiful, like, spirit visions, right? And they paint them. And I brought home two paintings for my grandchildren, you know, just these vivid, gorgeous, you know, I mean, it's a hallucinogenic, but supposedly it's the spirit world, right? And I went to Holliston to the frame shop I love to get them framed. And the woman was like, these are interesting. And I was like, yeah, these are, the, you know, these are spirit drawings. These are what, you know, people see in spirit. And she kind of, you know, you know, poo-pooed it and was, you know, not, you know, it was like, oh, well, what? that's kind of weird. And I'm like, well, <laughs> right. I don't know, either these can go above my grandchildren's um, beds or maybe a man with thorns on his head. Like, what What do I want my grandchildren to see? I want them to see this beautiful, alive, vivid spirit world, you know? Anyway, Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. But I, yeah, I want to talking about this. And no, I, I find it interesting too. And I just have to, as an anecdote, um, you know, doing this work for as long as I've been doing it, I've been involved in the paranormal community for 20 years now. Uh, I always find it very, very humorous because uh, I'll have people that'll come up to me and say, yeah, I don't believe in any of that garbage. But you know what happened to me when I was 10 years old? And you know, know. My, my grandmother appeared at the, my bed. And I'm like, how can you say you don't believe on one hand and then tell me this story on the other? I find it very curious. Right. It, it, and that's, you know, that's pretty true across the board. And, you know, I also, um, in India, I mean, they absolutely believe in reincarnation. And, you know, when children remember specific details about their uh, past life and they and the families can, you know, make the connections, they go and find the family of the, you know, past life that that child was in, and they have a big celebration yeah. over it. You know, and I mean, that's a, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's just, yeah, we need to be more open to, you know, at least consider it, right? Right, right. We took the long way to get to this next question, um, but when I brought up the paranormal specifically because you talk, you use the paranormal in the book as well. Tell us how you incorporate that. So there's a character in the book that has visions, and to me, it's clear. I don't know if it's clear. You know, it, it might be a little ambiguous to a reader, you know, whether she's crazy or whether she has, you know, sort of more spiritual visions. But she has visions um, of the grandmother, Inga's sister, Rigmore. She sees, that she sees that woman. She doesn't know her name or anything, but she describes what she sees behind Inga. And she would, this character was put in a mental hospital, and this does happen um, because she knew she was living in, you know, a group home, and she knew there was going to be a fire in the group home, and she told everybody and warned everybody before the fire. And, of course, then the fire happened, and they blamed her for the fire. Sure, yeah. And nothing to do with her. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there, there, in, it's, it, it does happen that people with, you know, these kind of visions and voices do get placed into mental hospitals. And I don't know, I'm not saying everybody who has, believe me, I, I get it. There's, there are, there's a whole spectrum and there are people who are very psychotic and need medicine and a different kind of help. But there are some people who really might be having more spiritual visions. But the other reason also is the grandmother in the book 
you know, this is all pushing against the boundaries and making her become a little bit more open, open to different, you know, to different experiences. And that's part of, you know, a main thread in the book is that, you know, these characters develop and are open to listening and understanding and possibly even believing that, you know, someone like Rigmore is still there. And in the end, the grandmother also has a vision and it's, it's kind of murky in terms of, could it be that she has a fever or is it really a vision? Again, you know, I think different readers will interpret it differently, but the idea for me as the writer is to, to push that boundary of openness. And the connection between this, what we will call paranormal phenomena on one hand and mental illness on the other hand goes both ways. And I think you kind of alluded to that as well. Um, you know, there are people that just truly have a paranormal gift who will be deemed mentally uh, um, ill because of right. it. And then there are people who claim to have, let's use a demonic possession as an example, when truly they are mentally ill. Uh, and, you know, they miss, they're not diagnosed because of this, uh, in some cases, I think a zeal to find some demonic possession and do an exorcism. Um, so it kind of both goes both ways, and it's really tragic in either either instance. Right. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you can't just, like, group, say everybody's this or everybody's that. Right. I mean, everybody. I think the thing that you end up with is everybody is, very unique yeah. and you know each case has to be looked at individually so the the paranormal part this the person who's having visions about who Rig, rigmore right rigmore, rigmore is, right. Yeah. Um, is that part of the fictional part of the book or did you base that on uh a, no there was somebody when i was there who did have um who did have visions so i didn't at that time again it's interesting because you know, at that time, I was not, I didn't really become open to that until until I met my friend Sophie and then later met different mediums and different psychics. And, um, but, but yeah, that was, there was somebody there who had those types of visions. Have you had an opportunity with your associations with psychics and or mediums to reconnect or connect for the first time with Rig with Rigmore, uh, maybe uh, your grandmother reconnect with her uh, through any of these people. Has that happened? Yes, I I definitely feel um, like I've connected with my mother, um, and and a number of different ways through mediums, but also through through dreams. I you know I think dreams are maybe I don't. I think that one of the most common ways that people are visited and, yeah, absolutely. you know, sometimes you just, a lot of people will be like, well, I just, she was in my dream because I was thinking about her, but you know, some of the dreams that are, that you really remember and that are very vivid about those visitation dreams, those are really real, I think, you know? Um, but yeah, I've had, I have some just, Mind in in my mind, okay, mm-hmm. mind blowing stories, especially around Sophie, who I saw for thirty years, because of the specificity of how she, like the details in which she knew things. Mm-hmm. That again is probably like a science person, you know. It's just like, well, that's just not all coincidence. You know what I mean? Like, right. there's too 
many specific things that you just got right that blew me away a number of times. Now, Sophie uh, was a psychic medium that you had met uh, by chance, or did you seek her out? How did that work? No, I met, it was by chance. It was a friend of of mine, and it happened to be his mother. Oh, okay. And I, yeah, I was not going to, you know, I was, I was going as a skeptic, obviously, and, you know, I didn't believe this and blah, blah, blah. And um, then the first reading I had, she, she read regular cards, not tarot cards. And regular playing cards, I don't know if people know, but they were initially designed to read fortunes. They weren't designed as playing cards. And she read those cards. And, I mean, I'll just throw one example out there. When Erica, my eldest daughter, was pregnant um, with her first child, she had just had a miscarriage. So she was, you know, it was her second pregnancy, and she was very, very anxious, as, you know, many women are. Sure. And um, especially after a miscarriage. But it, it was New Year's Eve, and she was getting an ultrasound. She got an ultrasound in Boston, and I happened to be in Chicago visiting my father. And she called me, Erica called me, and was absolutely, completely beside herself, hysterical, because she said the technician saw something in the ultrasound, and she didn't really understand what the technician said, but she said something about an artery in the baby's head. And, of course, I panicked, and I was like, oh, my God, and, you know, I was trying to calm her down and get off the phone with her. And there are a number of doctors in my family, including a radiologist, excellent radiologist, but who do I call? I call my psychic, Sophie. (laughs) And Sophie says, she's like, she reads the cards over the phone, and she's like, there's nothing wrong with the baby. The baby's absolutely fine. And I'm like, are you sure there's no, like, weird artery? And she's like, no, the baby's absolutely fine. But she said, Erica cannot have sex for two weeks. You need to tell her that. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to be telling Erica that, but okay. (laughs) And Sophie was like, something hasn't moved yet. It's going to take two weeks. And in two weeks, it'll move, and then she'll be fine. She can have sex whenever she wants, but you must tell her that. And, you know, I didn't end up telling Erica that. Erica went to her doctor, and the doctor was like, the baby's absolutely fine, but your placenta hasn't moved yet. It's still really low-lying, which, you know, meant that if she would have sex, it wouldn't damage anything, but she might bleed a little, and then she'd panic. And the doctor said, you can have sex, but you'll bleed a little, and then, you know, you'll panic, and then you'll need another ultrasound, which is fine. I'll give you one, right? So... You know, all of that happened, of course. And just that Sophie knew exactly, right? Like something hadn't moved yet. It was going to move. It would be two weeks. You know, those kind of things. And that happened over and over again. I mean, I don't know why that's the story that came into my head, but... um, (laughs) It's impressive nonetheless, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and then, you know, right, as kind of a logical, science-minded person, I'm like, yeah, those... Those details, and it wasn't just one time, you know. I mean, I would get those details so many times. It's crazy. Yeah, like, how can you not believe? Right. We are. We're going to be out of time here quickly, and I know. No, but I, I, know. I need. To, no, it's okay. This has been a fantastic and, and a, enlightening and fun discussion. But I need to ask you about uh, a, a, a line or one of the ways you describe the book or that you refer to the book. You say it has chilling echoes of our time. What's your reference there? What are you thinking? Um, I, I think for me, I'm thinking some of the, you know, 
propaganda. Um, that's a strong word, but, and that we don't know, like with the media these days, like what's always true and what's not true. And, you know, we're, we're, we seem to be, and we, we seem to be on these different sides. We're not listening to each other at all. Um, you know, I know there are more than two sides. There are many sides, but there's all, there's, there's blame and anger and, you know, twisting of the truth and, you know, some extremist ideas that, that I think are pretty frightening, you know? And I think the most important thing we can do is really talk to each other, listen to each other, try to understand where we're all coming from and why we're on, we're so adamant that we're right and the other side's wrong. And I always, I tell my students on the first day of class, I always ask them, what are, what are the three most important words you can say, right? And they always, you know, of course, you know, I love you or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, the three most important words you can say are I was wrong. Not I'm sorry, but I was wrong. They're very liberating. And, you know, I think we need to do a little of that. Right, so are you referring to, uh, and I agree with everything you just said, by the way, so I'm not, I'm not coming at this from an argumentative standpoint, but are you referring to, uh, the echoes of our time uh, related to what Nazi Germany was doing, the creep in in, in repression, uh, or is it more the mental illness part of this? What we- no, no, it's more, I think it, it well, they're t- sort of tied together, but yeah, it's, it's the repression, it's yeah. the not getting all the information. The propaganda, the all that stuff. Yep. It's the, you know... It's fear. People are feeling a lot of fear, those types of things. Right. But the other part of that lesson that we must not forget is that we can't turn our heads and turn a blind eye to some of these things. We need to address them. We need to watch them. We need to listen to them and we need to correct them. Because if we don't, we, you know, we could very easily find ourselves somewhere we don't want to be. I guess that's the lesson. Right. Yes, absolutely. You said it perfectly. Where can people find (laughs) where madness lies? So it, it'll be out February 1st, and they can find it pretty much anywhere. I mean, it's on, obviously, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And, um, I mean, there, if you Google the book or you Google my website, and I'd love to talk to people and anybody who wants to communicate with me um, can just go to my website and ask me anything they want. And your website is your name, sylviatrue.com? Yes, correct. Sorry, I should have made that clear. That's okay. It's been a fantastic hour, Sylvia. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Best of luck with the book. Keep us up to date as to what your projects are. We'd love to have you back at some point. All right. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.